I've observed that there are three ways to build a brand. One is the big CPG model, which is basically you go and spend a lot of money, millions of dollars to raise brand awareness. And you go do out of home, you do billboards, you go, you do TV, that kind of stuff. The second is you focus on one kind of lever like HubSpot did, which is inbound marketing. They're all about inbound marketing. So their entire brand was built on the basis of content marketing. So they just, you know, created a content engine that just cre created their brand and their uh, created the buzz. The third one is the more scrappy, resourceful, uh, grassroots kind of brand building, which is you make sure you are really identify your ICP and you build a, a integrated marketing set of strategies around that ICP. So you just build a brand almost from a grassroots level, but very heavily focusing on your ICP and, you know, growing uh, with that ICP. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Startup Operator Podcast. I'm Roshan Karyapa. The Startup Operator is where we curate insights on startup execution. Learn everything you need to know on how to build and scale your startup. On this podcast, I talk to Katie Srinivasan, who's a senior marketing leader. She's been with companies like Dropbox, Klaviyo, uh, and now Lightspeed. And she's also someone who's got a very diverse experience. She's been in gaming, entertainment, SaaS, so on and so forth. And she has this knack of being strategic and tactical. Uh, and she can talk about these things uh, in a way that is easy to digest and assimilate. She's super concise. So this was a fascinating conversation. I certainly liked it and I'm sure that you will too. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share, do all of the good stuff. Thank you so much again for all of your support and I hope you like this. Hey Katie, welcome to the Startup Operator Podcast. Thank you so much for making the time. Excited to be here, Roshan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, I've been meaning to talk to you for a while, ever since I caught your session at uh, Sequoia. And, and I think we're going to talk a lot about brand and how to build a team and like support a hyperscale startup and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, but one thing that is very obvious from your experience, it's, it's so diverse, right? I mean, you've been in entertainment, gaming, retail, from Dropbox to Owlet to Klaviyo and so on and so forth, right? Uh, across all of these diverse uh, experiences. What are some common threads from a marketing perspective for you? Yeah, no, thank you for That's a great question. So like you said, the, the industries that I've been in are really diverse. The one problem that I see over and over in all companies is even when there is product market fit, there is not a real clear understanding of the ICP. Uh, so in most of the cases, you know, I've stepped into roles where we haven't really defined and uh, gotten alignment on who the ideal customer profile is across the entire organization. So demand is coming from one particular set of audiences, but the company wants to, feels like we need to move in some other direction. And so there's, because of that lack of clarity, what happens is marketing messages got, get mixed up. So we have, we are trying to appeal to one set of personas where we are, our demand is actually coming from some other set of personas, the sweet spot is somewhere else. And so that causes, starts to cause a bunch of confusion because if you don't have clarity on who we are going after, how to build marketing, uh, you know, positioning around it and narrative around it, then how do, how do you build marketing strategies around that becomes very confusing. So that's been the main thing. I think, uh, you know, the other common theme I found is that this marketing is just not an island at all, right? In any company, uh, marketing is almost like, I feel like the team is 
sort of a grand central station in a lot of ways. You're, you're connecting to all kinds of other functions and departments and you're to some extent directing the flow of information from outside of the company, i.e. the customers into the company and to the right people. And you're directing the flow of demand, you're directing the flow of um, you know information and feedback. So marketing needs to consider themselves as the sort of the a central clearing house, if you will, of, of the right kind of information about our customers and feedback. And that doesn't happen. Uh, typically, a lot of marketer, marketing teams are set up as, hey, go figure out this demand gen thing. Just go start doing some ads. And then, you know. Yeah, generate some leads. Generate some leads. Yeah. And so you, if you're going in as a, I'm sure you've seen this too, you're going in as a head of marketing, you're going to have to help co-create the strategy and make sure marketing is helping drive the company strategy, not just marketing strategy. Yeah, I'm reminded of that, um, I don't know, this diagram in this old Kotler book, right? I mean, where he puts marketing at the center of it and other functions revolve yep. around it. Yeah. Um, but uh, but that's easier said than mm -hmm. done, right? How do you meaningfully overlap with, uh, let's say, a product or customer success and so on and so forth? Yeah. I think most of the overlap exists with sales, of course. And then these overlaps get bigger and bigger as the organization scales. But let's say very initially for a marketer starting out, let's say maybe a Series A company and so on. How would you, what would you suggest to this marketing person uh, in terms of overlapping more meaningfully with other functions? Yeah, I, you know, I think it comes down to what is the company trying to achieve, right? Uh, as a company strategy, if the company is saying, look, we need to, we we know that our product is resonating well in a certain market and we've, we are really dialed into that market. Now we just need to raise the, you know, awareness or we need to go out there and tell us, tell the story about who we are. Then that's a different problem than saying, let's go figure out where we have product market fit, who are the customers we have an audience in, what is the sweet spot? So it really starts with defining what the company problems are that we need to solve. And I mean, I think, look, I don't want to sound as if marketers have the most strategic minds because we don't. They do, right? <laughs> well, it's a distribution curve, I guess. But I mean, I'd say, you know, product and sales, everybody probably thinks they're the center of the world for a company, right? And all of us are needed and we need to work in an ecosystem. I think what is unique about marketing is because we uh, we have different sets of skills within marketing that can flex in different areas. So you have people who are content writers, who are super creative or designers, and then you have super scientific analytical people on the growth side. So you kind of sp span the spectrum. It becomes easy for us to try to understand what does the company need and then figure out how to solve for it. So if you're a my advice, and this is what I did. Well, some of it I got wrong. Some of it I got right. When I was in a series A startup is just really zone in on the top three problems that the company is trying to solve for. And invariably, there's always going to be a marketing component to it and how you help the marketing component. For instance, I'll tell you, you know, one of our biggest problems was we didn't have product market fit uh, for one of our audiences. We had to, marketing had to do everything from let's go survey the customers, do some ethnographic studies and understand who our ICP is, then help the product build the team. And then we got through that and then we started to look at churn and churn became a big problem and said, okay, how do we want to think about churn? So it, you can't go and do marketing in isolation of what the company context is. And that's the biggest thing that I think pretty much any marketing leader needs to be aware of. Yeah, I think uh, 
you know, you mentioned product market fit, right? And I always feel that's a work in progress, yeah. right? I mean, because you can still be at a 15, 20 or 30 million and still be trying to find product market fit along yeah. some axis or the other, right? And so, you know, what you said yeah. in terms of what is the problem statement that, you know, you need to go solve for yeah. becomes very important Correct. then, right? Because Correct. then you might have to interface more meaningfully with product yeah. and say that, hey, you know what? You know, you want us to put out X, but then people are really asking for Y. And is that something that you could consider and so yeah. on. Uh, of course, I mean, easier said than done. But yeah. uh, No, know. and I think you're bringing up the right question, right? Which is, uh, even if you have an insane product market fit, your penetration in that market is probably still low. And so you can have a, uh, almost theoretically infinite runway in penetrating into a certain market. But at some point, the cost of penetration becomes so much bigger than your cost of going to other audiences and other markets that you start to balance out, okay, we feel like we have critical mass in one market, in one segment. Do we now want to go address, uh, you know, something else? You step back a little bit. The higher uh, order question also is: At what point in a startup's life cycle do you say, "Okay, I'm, I'm happy with the net new ads that I'm, you know, additions that I'm getting to the business"? Now I need really want to start focusing on LTV and cross-selling the user base that I have. How do I harvest? And at what point do you? take that bifurcation in that road and start to focus on one or the other strategy. And that's all in my mind, it has to come from marketing who's driving that kind of conversation. Yeah. So 2020 happened and I was super paranoid that, you know, I mean, all our customers will churn and whatnot. So I spent a lot of time on figuring out what we can do on the customer marketing side of things, right? I mean, just support launch, adoption, success, just communicate a lot more, you know, enable them and so on. And uh, I can say that, I mean, the, the you know, it's had a, a let's say, a non-zero probability of success in terms of our NRR and so on and so forth, right? So I do feel that marketing can be relevant throughout the life cycle of the customer, right? I mean, oftentimes, I think as marketers, we're just happy to get people in through the door uh, and perhaps celebrate a win. But we can do so much more beyond that, I think. Correct. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah. So all of these things, right? I mean, who gets to think about this? Is this the CMO's job? Is this the VP marketing's job? Or is this something that has to be collectively owned by um, the entire team, right? And, and on that note, I mean, I'm, I'm always curious about what a person does when they graduate to, you know, these specific roles, right? Because I do feel like what I did as a manager is very different from what I'm doing now as a VP. So how how is that different for a CMO? You know, I think the scale of the problems is just different, right? Uh, you're starting to look at the, you're starting to look at taking decisions on bigger and bigger problem sets and having to basically step back a little bit more and think about the bigger picture a little bit more. I think that's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is the consequences of the decisions you take are going to be that much bigger. Uh, so that's another thing that you have to know or deal with is when you are in a, I'd say an executive role, for instance, you are taking decisions as a member of an executive team, not necessarily the leader of your functional department. And that's the biggest uh, transition that I've seen kind of people go through. I'd say the third one is, look, you have as a CMO, you're, you probably have a you know big bunch of big team who's directly reporting into you, but you also have a large amount of influence on a lot, lot of people sales or CS or product, they're basically uh, the, all the people, the ecosystem around you. So whatever you say and do has a ginormous amount of impact. So uh, you have to be necessarily thinking six months out. You're saying, 
based on all of these trends I'm seeing, I think this is what we can expect to get X, Y, and Z. Or I I know that we need to do a rebrand. That's going to take us 12 months. So what do I need to do now to put those things in place so that it's going to happen in 12 months? So the time frame of decisions, the time frame of execution just gets lengthened uh, if you're a CMO. But, but the flip side of that is you also tend to lose sight of the day-to-day of the business. <laughs> so you have to be aggressively on top of details and you have to be really understanding the minutia, getting to know the details as much as possible, because otherwise it's so easy to get lost in the strategy and the, the top level stuff that it's easy to lose sight of what's actually happening. Right. So a lot of startups as they scale, right. And, you know, especially pre IPO, they hire, let's say an experienced marketing leader from the Valley. And, you know, that person is the CMO and becomes like the de facto spokesperson for the brand. Right. Do you see that work better or do you see like CEO graduate to that role better? You know, Mm. it all depends on the context, of course. I mean, the reason why many pre IPO companies go for someone uh, who has had a pedigree and experiences, taking a company public is a pretty complicated task. There's lots of moving pieces, lots of different stakeholders. And at some point you need to have, really think very critically about the story you're trying to tell in across multiple audiences and you know manage that. You have to manage a bunch of stakeholders. So it needs, I'd say it needs a certain level of um, experience and expertise, uh, which is why people automatically gravitate towards people who have done that before. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody who hasn't done it can't do it. Obviously, there are extremely talented people and who have potential who can do it. It's just a matter of making sure that you're comfortable, that you're taking a risk on someone who hasn't done it before, that they are the right person, the right set of DNA to do it. I mean, one of the companies I worked for, you know, they went public and the CFO had never taken a company public, but he is just so amazing that, you know, he did a, a really amazing job in doing that. I wouldn't recommend a CEO to act the role of a CMO, to be honest with you. I think there is some danger in a CEO kind of operating at that level. You you want a CEO to be operating at the, the strategic level. But I would definitely, if you're a CEO, based on your appetite for risk, you either go hire someone or try to hire, I mean, you know, internally give your people a chance. Okay, let's talk about brand. Yeah. Let's say a Series A company or Series B or whatever, right? I mean, you have your leads coming in. Uh, demand gen engine is uh, pretty much set. The flywheel seems to be moving. How do you make the case for brand, right? Because oftentimes when you talk to a founder or even a, the exec team, brand just seems like a lot of money with very fuzzy outcomes, mm-hmm. right? And you're asking to invest in outcomes that may may or may not happen in in let's say months and years, right? Not something as immediate as, okay, I launched a campaign, I got some X number of leads and we're going to hopefully convert those a portion of those leads to revenue, right? Something not immediate, something not tangible. So how do you make the case for brand in such an environment? Yeah, so look, the way I think about brand is I've observed that there are three ways to build a brand. One is the big CPG model, which is basically you go and spend a lot of money, millions of dollars to raise brand awareness, and you go do out of home, you do billboards, you go, you do TV, that kind of stuff. And I, I'll talk about the specific use cases for each of those. The second is you focus on one kind of lever like HubSpot did, which is inbound marketing. They're all about inbound marketing. So their entire brand was built on the basis of content marketing. So they just, you know, created a content engine that just cre- created their brand and their bu- uh, created the buzz. The third one is the more scrappy resourceful 
uh, grassroots kind of brand building, which is you make sure you are really identify your ICP and you build a, a integrated marketing set of strategies around that ICP. So you do events, you, you know, in certain for that ICP, you really focus on your customers and getting the word of mouth out from your customers. You do very targeted PR, you do very targeted campaigns that drive, you know, certain direct response type of ads. So you just build a brand almost from a grassroots level, but very heavily focusing on your ICP and, you know, growing uh, with that ICP. So the first one is the big blitz strategy, the pros and the use cases there to, um, in my mind are when you want to get your word out in a big way, you don't have a lot of time and you just want to make a big splash in a certain market or, you know, so in back in, I'd say 2019, 2018, there used to be an arms race to own certain categories and own certain keywords and, and people had lots of money. So then you would do that. You'd go just splurge on brand and just get the word out there and all that kind of stuff. The second one is you have to be, the second strategy, the use cases, you have to be very, very, very clear what the problem is that you're solving for your customers. You know what your customers are and you give them exactly what they want. And it, it does take time, but you have to be 100% invested behind it. The third one, in my opinion, is the more pragmatic one in this environment, which is you don't spend millions, but you do spend on very specific targeted uh, places to go and build your brand. The advantage of that is that you can actually measure those things. So you can say from, from a PR perspective, you can measure earned impression. If you're doing events, you can measure MQLs and SQLs from events. So there are ways to micro measure the brand in through all of the different tactics and activations you're putting in there. So it becomes a lot more easy and you don't have to go make the case to your board that I'm going to spend $3 million on brand and ask them to take a leap of faith on that, which will never happen in this market. To me, that's the way you start thinking about digesting the brand. Now, if you get to a certain point where you are like, okay, now we are seeing organic traffic go up. We are seeing that our inbound lead quality has improved quite a bit. And then you say, okay, now we have an expansion opportunity to go into X, Y, and Z. Then you start to get more aggressive, but it becomes part of a process. Oftentimes, brand is an afterthought, yeah. right? I mean, so there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of legacy that, you know, one has to maneuver basically, right? Yeah. Um, simply getting all of the stakeholders in a room is just so challenging. Yeah. In terms of thinking about it very tactically, right? How would you go about like articulating positioning or like, you know, building out this brand uh, as such that, you know, we can later yeah. amplify through campaigns and so on and yeah. so forth. So see, I, the way I think about brand is basically there are two different aspects. One is the, the identity itself, the visual and the verbal identity of the brand. And then there's the spreading the word out, getting the word out, the distribution side of the brand. When it comes to visual and verbal identity, it's the, what does the brand represent? What does the brand stand for? How do you show up from a visual aesthetic perspective, a tone and voice perspective and, and that kind of stuff. And that has to be, you can, you can work on that in without spending a bunch of money. All you need is some really smart people who know the customers really well, some creative people, and you're thinking through the category, the competition, uh, what the company wants to achieve from a m mission and vision perspective. But the other thing is it has to be tied to super tightly linked to your product positioning. So you need to make sure the product story you're telling ties to the brand story you're telling it and, and becomes a seamless thing that you can do 
without any money, basically, right? Of course, you can also go hire agencies who do that for you um, and all that stuff. But the distribution of that then is the part that we talked about in this in the previous uh, couple of minutes, which is getting the word out about that brand is going to either take you resourcefulness or it's going to take you money, uh, depending on which way you're inclined. So in my opinion, brand should the the first part of it to answer your question, it should not be an afterthought. It should be something that you all sit together and do as a company. Your chief product officer should be completely aligned with your chief revenue officer, who should be completely aligned with the CEO or the CEO on what does the brand represent? Who Who is the company? Who is the brand? What is the product? How does the product show up in the brand? It's like the colors you use, the logos you use, all of that should just come together to uh, do it. So the that in that way, brand is kind of first and foremost, right? As a, I'm sure I've never started a company, but I'm sure as an entrepreneur, when you're thinking about a company, subconsciously you're thinking about the image you present for, through your company. And so that is brand, basically. That's thinking about brand. The other part of it, the getting the word out there, that that's the thing that you leave to your marketers and say, okay, guys, figure out how to do it, you know, within a certain amount of constraints. You have you know, X thousand dollars, you need to show me this kind of results at the end of it, like organic or whatever, and go figure it out. Yeah. No, I think, you know, as you alluded to, right, I mean, brand exists in some form, for sure. I mean, it's it's amorphous, maybe, I mean, nobody has really articulated it uh, yeah. uh, precisely, yeah. uh, but it exists and, you know, sort of what you're trying to do in this whole exercise is to identify that and then, you know, figure ways to amplify it, right? What are your thoughts on category creation? I mean, is it passe now? I mean, is, is it something worth investing in? We saw like this whole craze in 2018, 2019 that you mentioned, right? And then I think, you know, some of that has fizzled out. Also, there's so many nuances to this, right? I mean, when you're talking about a category, it's not just about you. I mean, you also have to think about your competitors uh, and your peers and so on, right? So, yeah, your thoughts on category creation? Yeah, look, I, I don't know. I I think when, when we were going through that craze, it didn't really resonate with me, the whole idea of deliberately going out and creating a category, particularly when you don't have a product that is unique and different. It's just really hard to say that you're a, you're a category. However, I'll say the... I can see the theoretical appeal of category creation, to be honest with you. Like it's the the idea that you're framing the problem statement in such a different way to the, to your customers that they don't bucket you along with your competitors. And they think of you as something completely different, a new, new pro, uh, service, new whatever. So that's the, to me, the appeal of category creation is just that you're you're just completely framing, reframing the problem statement, and you're reframing the mar- the way the market looks at your uh, at your solution, right? I don't think you need to go through the idea of a category creation to do that. I think you just need to very smart about marketing. Like if you look, read the twenty two laws of immutable laws of marketing, the Al Rice uh, book. Basically, what they say is marketing is a is basically a battle of owning the perception in a customer's minds. It's about owning a single word. You want to be the one who they associate with when you when they think about that word. So like Hertz, they I think they give an example of Hertz uh, as they're the gold standard. Like if you say gold standard of car, car rentals, Hertz comes to mind, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's about owning a word. And if you can do that cleverly through marketing, you don't really need to go through all of this category creation stuff. Now, 
if you have the money, of course, like I'd say, do the lightning strikes, do all of that stuff. In this environment, I'd be very surprised if people don't have uh, outcomes associated with all the money they're spending against Brent. Sorry, just to get back to the key question, I believe there is value in helping customers understand that your product solves problems in a different way than your competitors. I believe there's value in saying that could be a new category. And it, I think particularly if you're selling to enterprises, I think there's value in trying to get the analysts behind <clears throat> saying, okay, there is a, this might be a new category so that you gain market leadership in that you know problem statement, whether that comes under the, the heading of category creation or just plain good old marketing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, also when, let's say you're disrupting a conventional space, right? I mean, like, for instance, let's say CRMs, right? You don't want to call yourself the the same old application. I mean, you, you're doing something different. You're solving the same problem, uh, but you're solving it in a different way, right? You want to sort of evangelize your approach to the, you know, solving that problem. Uh, so you don't want to get lumped along with, you know, all of the stuff that a legacy application in that space does, right? I mean, so I think that is also a kind of a reason that people were considering it, but uh, it, it just feels like, uh, you know, it's it's not worth the squeeze, right? I mean, there's just so much of transience uh, with these uh, categories as well. I mean, uh, you know, Drift is a classic example, right? I mean, they started this whole conversational marketing thing and then they've they've become so much more than that right now. I mean, they're, you know, what do you call them? Marketing automation? I don't yeah. know, right? 100%. I think the transience of the, uh, like you said, the category itself is one thing, but it's also very hard to go and create a category, right? Uh, particularly if you don't, I mean, your product needs to be able to back it up and your customers need to be able to use that word as a almost like an intuitive way and so there's lots of things that happen category creation takes a lot of time and by that time the market changes so many different things can happen yeah and you know all of this is just nice to say unless you know someone actually budgets for it right i mean is is someone really budgeting for that category of application something that you talk about a lot is aligning with the ceo right and this i think is particularly important irrespective of what stage of growth you're in what stage of startup you're at right i mean whether it's a seed or series a or you know even further down right what are some ways to align with the ceo i i personally feel that it's either a hit or a miss right i mean either you get with the program or you could spend a lifetime trying to convince person of your vision and you know you yeah. folks will always be at odds and perhaps never meet yeah. right so is it that is it that bleak or i mean <laughs> is there are there some tricks of the tricks of the trade that uh, you know you've noticed in order to sort of overlap and align better i mean it's such a good question and i think you i really like the way you framed it which is you are expected to both be an expert and therefore disagree and provide your uh, feedback while also towing the line and saying, yes, okay, I'll do whatever, <laughs> you know, it's required type of a thing. And so that's the hardest balance. And that's kind of almost, you'll never find the balance. You're almost always like going from one end of the spectrum to the other. For me, I think what's worked is some of what has worked and because there's lots of things that haven't worked. I think it's constant alignment on what needs to happen. Uh, for instance, you know, like in my current job, I as tactically as this, I, in my one-on-one -on -one doc, I have a list of the top priority projects that my boss and I, we have agreed on as this is the kind of stuff that we need to go and do. And almost every week, I just give him an update. Here's the timeline. Here's how we are doing uh, against these. So I feel like that might give a sense of comfort that, okay, the things that are 
top of mind for the CEO, we are going after and, you know, there's a plan in place to do that stuff. But at the same time, there are in my one on one talk, I also have things that say, OK, here are things that I don't you know, kind of I, we need to talk about or that I'd like us to explore a little bit further because this is what I'm seeing. So I think that's one super tactical. The other thing that has worked for me, you know, a couple of times is when you come into a new job, you you really have to put in the effort to build a marketing strategy, right? Like, and I usually use this framework, A.G. Laffley's framework. It's called uh, playing to win. I think, yeah, the where to play, how to win framework. It's, it's been just wonderful to get people aligned. So get the executive team aligned, get the board aligned, you know, the where to play, how to win. But the problem is every quarter you need to go and update that, uh, right? Because things keep changing, particularly in a high growth environment. So it's that constant alignment of, okay, let's just step back. Here's for a quarter. This is the sort of the roadmap. This is what we are looking at. Here's what I think we need to do. Here's X, Y, and Z. This is my observation. I think that's what it comes down to is constant alignment and just being on top of the conversation with your CEO and, you know, being you being the person who's proactively pushing for those conversations because a CEO has a thousand things on their mind and they're not going to of course. track everything. The other, other thing is if you're in SaaS in particular, you and the CRO have to go into those conversations almost super aligned, um, right? You have to be on the same page in terms of, hey, here's the kind of go-to-market strategy we are going after for this SMB customers. Here's the go-to-market for our enterprise customers. You have to have a very clear idea of uh, how you both are doing it. And that helps with the alignment as well. If the CEO is hearing the same message from you and the CRO, then it becomes easier. I think one additional thing I'd say is when you have a great team who's working on problems, you will naturally find that some of the things that you went in with in terms of assumptions are not working or there are there are different ways to do it. And surfacing up that work and those assumptions and that data is going to be super helpful to elevate the common understanding across the executive team on, hey, look, we went into this program, let's call it, with this set of assumptions. Here are some ways that those assumptions are wrong. And so now let's go back and redo, or here's how we are rethinking this problem. Those kinds of things build trust. And I think that's what I'd say is the trust factor is the most important one when it comes down to yeah. it. Yeah, that's such a, such a great answer. Uh, I think you really have to earn that credibility, right? I mean, you can't walk in as the expert and sort of dictate terms um, because you're ultimately solving a business problem and you do have to prioritize those problems, right? And marketing is a tool to solve those problems. Um, basically. So we'll take a small t tangent here. I want to ask you about your pet peeves in marketing. Is that like a whole laundry list of stuff or do you have like your top three? Ah, that's a good question. You know, I think the, my biggest pet peeve is uh, we've chosen a profession where almost everybody in the world thinks they know how to do marketing, right? <laughs> or they use it pejoratively, yes. right? <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, exactly. For the longest time, I didn't want to be known as a marketer because it was such a I think that's one one thing is I think there is so much logic and science behind marketing, but uh, I don't think people appreciate that part. And so you get constant feedback and advice. Oh, wait, this company, your competitor is running this particular campaign and we should be doing this other campaign and stuff like that, <laughs> which sometimes is helpful, but sometimes not. I'd say that's the one pet peeve. The second pet peeve is um, 
marketers get a bad rap because we don't tend to showcase our achievements in ways that make logical sense like we'll say oh we ran this amazing campaign and it you know like um, all our sales people were talking about it all our customers are talking about it that's just not going to land well with anyone especially the cfo <laughs> right? uh, so you have to be very logical and structured when you present and communicate so I, I keep um, giving this coaching to marketers is the job of communicate, your job is communicating and make sure you communicate internally as well, because the communication aspect is probably the most important part of getting buy-in and alignment in uh, internally. So marketers are bad communicators. That's another problem I've seen, <laughs> I mean, at least internally. So yeah. that's probably... No, I, I noticed that as well. I mean, I think we really suck at uh, talking about our work, right? I mean, I, and, you know, the kind of impact that's had or how important it is and so on and so forth, right? I mean, we just assume that it's, it's hey, it's so obvious. We're doing fantastic. Yeah, and right? the focus on process rather than outcome, uh, that's another thing that gets me. I'm like, no, 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 no. We need to figure out what we are solving for and then, you know, work backwards, not try to think about an idea to do something and then figure out what we are, why we need to do it. I want to talk about building the team. Right? You talk about hiring doers versus hiring strategists. So I personally hired a bunch of generalists when we began five or six years ago, and all of these folks have scaled up fantastically well. We hired experts at certain uh, you know intervals of time for, let's say, SEO, for paid campaigns, so on and so forth, uh, to get that you know, last mile knowledge uh, into the system. Right? How do you think about scaling your team as you grow, you know, because let's say the person who is running paid campaigns, right, can't be doing that forever. Now, he or she must scale well beyond that to achieve like a certain mastery of whatever they started with, but then they also have to meaningfully overlap, you know, left and right and pick up other things to do and so on and so forth. How do you think about scaling your team as you as you grow? Yeah, I, I think you, you hit on it, which is you have to constantly do a balance of generalists and specialists. That's definitely number one. I'd say the other thing is um, you need to have a balance of people who are doing, but all, not people who do strategy, but people who coach. Balance of coaches versus doers. That's that's a second one. And I think as you think about it, the third one is the span of control. You just need to make sure that you're controlling for what is a set of responsibilities and scope that people have. At the end of the day, my philosophy is you need to be able to give the people in your team a chance to step up and be able to take on more. And like you said, there are people who will show aptitude in coming out of their T in, no, sorry, in, in coming out of their depth in, and going broader. And those are the people who are making connections across different disciplines and putting it all together and bring, bringing that level of thinking. That's basically strategy, right? When you think about it. So you need to give those people a chance to do more of that, to see more bridges or create more bridges, to see more connections across multiple things. But to, in order to do strategy, you have to be a detailed person. <laughs> That's the weird conundrum because you can't build strategy in isolation. So if you can find more of those people, just you know, pour all your gas in terms of coaching and mentoring and getting them there. At the same time, in certain functions, what I've done in the past is like ABM, for instance, right? You can you can give people the latitude to, to build that expertise over a long period of time, but there are so many people out there who have that specialty already that you can do basically plug and play with. So you hire them. You do a very critical job of picking those capabilities which are 
uh, which have been on, you know that there is already a playbook out there. You have plenty of people who have done it before. You just, you know, bring them in. But the people who are really showing a lot of promise in doing that, you go and elevate them. Now, I've also hired VPs of product marketing, VPs of pricing. And there, I think it's when you do that, you have to be very clear about what is the what are the outcomes and what is the DNA you're looking for from a leader of that kind of caliber. Outcomes, you can be very clear in the first, you know, one year, these are the things that I want you to go solve for. The DNA is the harder part because you need to have some, you need to be very clear about what is the balance of leadership versus business knowledge versus context. Functional expertise. Expertise that they need to bring. You need to be very clear about the culture fit. You need to be very clear about you know, how they are going to, a lot of the times what happens is people who have done a job for many years are extremely valuable because they've done that job and seen a bunch of things, but they also come with a playbook and which might not fit in with your unique context. So you need to ha- find people who can also create a playbook when it's needed. And so that's the caliber of people you're looking for when you start hiring a VP and, you know, that, that level. So I think it's a mix, to be honest with you. Promote within us when you find the change makers bring in the right people at the VP level, bring in the right people at the at this functional capability level so that you construct the team in the way you want. And you know what? To be honest with you, it'll not work out the way you want it to. <laughs> there are so many times when you are going to have to make some tough decisions, so many times where you're going to have, have to say, this just, you know, I was wrong or like this, our business changed or this wasn't what we were looking for. And then you're going to have to make changes as needed and be pretty ruthless about it. That's such a great point you bring up, right? I mean, about playbooks, right? And this is something that I want to talk about as well, right? Let's say you hire this expert, right? A person who's been there, done that and so on and so forth. How much do you trust this person to come and replicate whatever whatever they've done versus, you know, ask them to still look at things from a first principles perspective and balance the two out? And oftentimes I feel like, you know, uh, they're almost differential to them, right? Because they've been there and they've done that, right? Especially if you're hiring someone senior. So how do you sort of balance those two things? Yeah. And by the way, this is exactly the conversation that's playing out in your CEO's head, <laughs> right? When they bring you in as a marketing person. I think it's you being very clear about the, again, I go back to outcomes, you being very clear about the outcomes that you want and being able to say, this is my vision. This, this, these are the kinds of things that are important to me. Here's where I think we should go. Hopefully bring them on board with the vision and then sort of let them choose the how they want to do it. But at the same time, there you probably have some very specific ideas of, I'm just giving some random example, right? I don't want us to over rely on partnerships for growth. I don't want us to touch self-serve, right? You kind of give the sandbox or the boundaries of which you are very clear that you don't want and then you just let them let them go and then like i was saying with the ceo it, it does come down to having constant alignment and you hope that that leader is doing the same like they're creating the alignment they're getting close they're building the trust on an ongoing basis you talk about not growing faster than your process right uh, and being really organized about it and almost making a present role redundant in some sense right you have to keep thinking ahead how do you think ahead right and is there like a you know something that you would suggest as i don't know sort of a milestone or some something to think it's easy to say that okay where will we be like three or six months from now right but you're still thinking very linearly um right so how do you sort of like move that delta you know how do you think ahead how do you plan for what could be 
Yeah, it's a, such a good point. I think it comes down to really keeping a, a year on the ground, to be honest with you, on the market. So what what are your competitors doing? What are the adjacent, um, not just your competitors, but the adjacent sort of products that may one day become your main competitors? How are they sort of uh, evolving? Uh, what are your partners looking at? Par- generally partners in that ecosystem, they have a really good sense of, uh, spidey sense of what's happening in the market. How are your customer needs evolving? I remember having one conversation I had a, with a customer. They were saying, yeah, I, I mean, this is fine for now. Your your product fits my needs. But the for now, became, you know, that, that just sent my alarm bells ringing. What do you mean for now? <laughs> what else is happening in your context that we are not serving your needs about? So really talk, digging in with customers about the problems they are facing, how we are not helping them, or generally what kind of problems they they wish was were being served by different products. And then I honestly, the, the biggest threat to all of our, our businesses is generative AI, right? And that's the that's the one that has the potential to really completely change the way that we do things. And so for me, it's been in the last few um, couple of months, I'm just feverishly trying to absorb as much as I can about generative AI so I can understand what implications that has. So it's things like that, I think. And that's why as a, as a executive, as a leader of marketing, you, I don't do a good job of this, but you have to really carve out time to think and process and, learn for the future because your kind of your existence uh, the company and the team depends on that right my final question uh, or pre-final depending on how much time we have yeah. <laughs> uh, is about building a marketing culture right i mean you talk about going on an adventure right i mean letting people make their mistakes learn from it about balancing compassion and accountability as a manager and so on what has worked for you in building this sort of a marketing culture where you know people are sort of intellectually curious they have freedom and responsibility in equal parts and so on i think it comes down to defining uh, your values and uh, making that very clear for people so one of my values is uh, learning and passion for learning and then also innovation and creativity so whenever i come into a new situation i just make that super clear hey this is this is what drives me and this is what's super important and and then you kind of build some structures and systems around that so for instance like a rewards program right where every quarter at a town hall we recognize people who have gone above and beyond or who have failed in some way or who have uh, created something you know new in some way so you kind of create these systems around your the value system that and building a culture comes down to consistency right you pick a few things and they are completely consistent about the those sets of principles and behaviors and then pretty soon people start to realize oh this this is what is expected of me and us and you start to see amazing kind of innovation creativity coming out of it Right. Uh, any books or podcasts that you would recommend before I let you go? I've been doing a lot of uh, reading of Harvard Business Review, to be honest. Uh, and there, that's one thing. And then the second one that I recently discovered is a website called modelthinkers.com. It basically outlines different kinds of model business models. And it's fascinating. It's, a, it's so many different applications of different kinds of things. So that I definitely suggest checking that out. I've not really had time to dig into any books, but I will send some send along some recommendations when I remember it. Awesome. 
thank you so much katie this was a lot of fun i mean i have a ton of questions that i want to ask you maybe we'll do a follow up absolutely uh, that sounds good thank you for having me